Coming up on today's show, some dire warnings from the UN with their latest intergovernmental panel on climate change. An overwhelming majority of Canadians support a wealth tax. We'll get details behind that. And all over the province, and in fact, all over the country, you're seeing them. Help wanted signs everywhere. Yet, unemployment in Alberta is still 8.5%. Let's get into this. And uh, a lot of you asking questions, a lot of you making points. Some good ones about this latest report that we saw from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. Now, they issue these reports every once in a while. Uh, This is the most recent one. Uh, It's the work of more than 200 scientists that have gone through thousands of studies. Um, The accompanying summary had to be approved by uh, delegates from 195 countries, so it's a pretty global effort. Now, more than any other forecaster record ever before, Uh, This report's determinations will, you know, they'll be part of the global consensus. Where do we stand on this and what are we going to do about it? Among the headlines, the past decade likely hotter than any period in the last 125,000 years. Um, Combustion and deforestation have raised carbon dioxide in the atmosphere higher than they've been in 2 million years. And methane and nitrous oxide concentration higher than at any point in the last 800,000 years. The UN calls this a code red for humanity. That's what, I mean, pretty dire predictions. They're saying that we should shoot past the 1.5 degrees Celsius increase that we've always talked about as being sort of the make or break point within a couple of decades. Tops. Um, We have about a 50% chance of staying below that threshold, which was called for in the Paris Agreement, um, if CO2 emissions from last year onwards remain below 500 billion tons. So it's all about what's going on, and the report also concludes beyond a reasonable doubt they're saying it. We now know without a shadow of a doubt that this is caused by human activity. Okay, so let's get some details on the science behind this. We're going to chat now with Ian Morrow, who is the Executive Director of the Climate Change Centre at the University of Winnipeg. Ian, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Good morning. This report, um, dire, uh, more dire than any report we've seen from the UN before, um, basically they're saying this is it, this is make or break, right? Well, we've been hearing this for, you know, report after report after report. You know, the last one was eight years ago, um, seven, eight years ago, uh, 2013. And um, each time these reports come out, we get, you know, greater evidence that it's human caused, that it's extreme, and that we need to change our ways. And so we've had these kind of, you know, bells of, you know, alarm going off for decades now. And the real question is, are we going to act? are we going to change our behavior? Because, you know, essentially the science is more clear, the impacts are more severe, and it's really about the choices that we make now. The question now, uh, they say, has been answered. There is no doubt, and they can point to whatever science they have access to, to say, without a doubt, this is caused by human activity. How? What, what are they basing that on? We had a chance to determine how they're capable of saying, without a shadow of a doubt, this is caused by human activity? Well, for sure. You know, when we take a look at these kind of paleo records, you can look at everything from kind of tree rings to ice cores, and you can look at, you know, what the earth was doing, you know, prior to industrialization, essentially prior to the burning of oil, gas, and coal. And when we see the industrialization of human society, we see this kind of uptick, and and in some ways they call it the hockey stick, you know, the hockey stick graph where it's been kind of flat. And then you see this increase of, of greenhouse gases, you know, carbon dioxide, methane, and others. And with that, we see this, this corresponding uptick of temperature. 
And that increase in temperature, that global warming, causes all of these changes to the Earth's system. And so you can actually see it in these paleo records. You can actually see it in the modeling that they do. And so the science is very sophisticated, and we can look at natural forcings without kind of human intervention and greenhouse gases and model it with those interventions of greenhouse gases. And and the data just clearly shows that humans are causing these trends. And, you know, some people might be like, well, how can we know this stuff? You know, the neat thing is if you look back, you know, 20, 30 years, and you look at the science of, of, of those decades that have gone by, when they were actually looking at the kind of climate projections back then, they stack up perfectly to what we're seeing today. So we actually know, and there's scientific papers out there testing how well these models have worked over time. And we actually know that, that they actually have a, a high degree of accuracy. And so, um, you know, science has shown us how to how various phenomenon work and climate is actually one where it's it's, it's very good predictor of, of the things we might see in the future. And I want to go a little deeper. You were talking about, you know, how you can discover historic information and things like that. When they're talking about higher levels than we've seen in two million years, how can they possibly make that statement? What is the science that they use to determine what CO2 levels were two million years ago? Well, you know, again, I was talking about these ice cores, and this isn't my area of science, but I can I can kind of give you a little bit of an update on, on where that stuff comes from. You know, when they dig into the, the kind of, you know, glaciers of the world, they can actually get trapped bubbles of that previous atmosphere in that ice. And so you get these ice cores, and there's huge science doing that. And they're looking at, you know, these paleoclimates, and they can actually tell, and they actually get the samples of that atmosphere that is layered inside this ice as, you know, these glaciers and snow is falling there's air that's trapped inside it and so it's quite remarkable you know human beings were amazing creatures and our intelligence is remarkable and our ability to actually determine these things is 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 quite uh, amazing uh, tree rings for example there's there's dendroclimatologists who will look at you know thousand year old trees and they will be able to see when there was drought and stress years where a, a tree ring is so minimally uh, developed that they can actually look back and determine that there was drought uh, stress on those trees. And so there's all these different areas of science that allow us to look at that kind of paleoclimate, that hind casting, compare it to the future. And if you look at the head note, the, the main kind of uh, summary for policymakers, they actually talk about that. They say that they looked at paleoclimates, they looked at projection data, they've looked at all the peer-reviewed literature, and so this report is an accumulation of all these ways of knowing, all of these tools to understand where we're at. And again, it's the most dire assessment that's come out of the IPCC yet. Yeah, it certainly is. And is it a process of elimination? Like they take a look at volcanic activity, they look at solar activity, they look at all the other things that could possibly have landed us where we are now. And and, and they can say, okay, well, that didn't do it. Because I know they, they point out that if you want to talk about volcanic activity, it's a, a tenth of a percent that could be involved in where we are now. So is it a process of elimination almost that leaves us with there's nothing else? Absolutely. And that stuff is parked, right? Like we, we know that it's not that now. And so, you know, the neat thing about this new assessment is that the actual models for looking at the future have actually changed. And so we were looking at kind of these radio um, forcings on, on the, you know, watts per square meter and, you know, how much heating is taking a place across the landscape. And they've actually changed the actual way in which we're starting to think about climate futures. And they have this process of thinking about shared socioeconomic pathways. And so for the first time in the IPCC process, 
we're really starting to look at not just these kind of, you know, temperature futures, but we're looking at these societal futures. And so there's five new kind of scenarios that they've developed. And one is this kind of sustainability scenario. If we really work hard to, you know, bring together an inclusive form of development where environment is prioritized, health is prioritized, you know, and we're reducing inequality and we're increasing education and we're really kind of tracking in a, in a clean way. The extreme on the other end is that kind of continued fossil fuel development. And in between, we kind of have middle road and we have collaboration and we have inequality and, you know, different but, you know, scenarios around how this might play out. And I think that's a, a really important part of this new assessment because what it's doing is it's kind of talking about the science, but it's actually talking about society and, and, and our options and the choices that we make. And that's how I kind of preface the interview is it's, it's what we decide to do now. And these models that they're developing account for these different ways in which society might orient itself and the implications of that orientation. Because if we decide to just kind of do that, you know, fossil fuel future, the implications are enormous. And we actually have ways to kind of transition out of that and move into a more sustainable and green future that will limit the warming, limit the impacts. And, and, and one of the crazy things about the report is it also says that some of this stuff is absolutely irreversible. Yeah. The loss of the glaciers, the loss of these ice sheets, the world in which we know it is going to fundamentally change forever. There will be things that our kids will never be able to see in their lifetimes that we are seeing right now because the changes will happen so quickly, except for the fact that we can change a different pathway in society to limit you know, the, the, the extreme pace at which these changes are occurring and give ourselves some time to figure this out. And that's really what this report is about. It's saying, hey, we need to change our ways and choose a different future. They lay out five different scenarios based on what could happen if we don't act or if we do act or whatever, you know, how much we act. Um, and basically what we're talking about, first of all, why is the 1.5 degrees Celsius benchmark, why was that chosen in Paris? Why is that seen to be as such an important marker in terms of warming of the earth? You know, that's a fabulous question. And and they started around this kind of two degrees. That was actually right. the Paris Agreement. You know, they were like two degrees. We have to figure out two degrees. And a lot of these small island nation states in the South Pacific said at two degrees, the modeling shows that literally the oceans are going to increase in size because the, the warming of the ocean, you know, if you think about the kinetic energy, the molecules moving, the, they actually expand. Expand. The actual oceans expand when the glaciers are melting. You know, that's new water in the oceans. And these South Pacific countries were saying, we won't be here at two degrees. We will literally have oceans kind of covering our land masses. And so they advocated for 1.5 degrees Celsius. And this is actually one of the first times in the history of, you know, climate change where the policymakers were ahead of the scientists. And the scientific community was like, well, we actually don't know what a 1.5 future looks like. And so immediately after Paris, the scientific community went to try and figure out, well, what does 1.5 actually mean? And they released a report uh, saying that essentially, you know, the difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees is absolutely massive in terms of food security, in terms of water security, in terms of all of these things. And so the whole focus changed to actually 1.5 should not just be aspirational. That's actually like a safe upper limit that we need to be driving our kind of policy towards. And so these new scenarios that you just mentioned, that kind of sustainability track will get us kind of 
close to 1.5, but we're quickly closing the window on being able to achieve that. Mm-hmm. And when I say 1.5, that's 1.5 degrees warming from industrial time. So that kind of 1800s and that paleo climate, we kind of saw that stable climate and we've increased a little over one degree Celsius. And you look at what has happened this year in BC, the highest temperature ever recorded in Canadian history. And that is because of this global, you know, one plus degree Celsius change around the globe. Well, here in Canada, we're seeing these massive spikes in temperature. So if you think about it warming past 1.5, at the end of the century, they're saying in an extreme year, uh, extreme scenario, you know, it could be 4 degrees, 5 degrees Celsius warmer than that industrial average of the 1800s. Well, if we warm that much, like, we can't even imagine what might happen to society, the unmooring of the foundations of our society. So they, these, are, these are not kind of theoretical ideas. This is what the best science is saying, and this is the call to action that the UN has made as of this morning. Morning. Yeah, and exactly. And they're saying, you know, if we get to that 4.4, that, that, that's a scenario that we just cannot possibly even entertain. Question for you, and it's coming in from a lot of listeners, and I have the same question. Uh, and I know Alberta used to be like a tropical environment, and then it went through an ice age. So what was fueling climate change back then? Uh, obviously, it wasn't human involvement. So, I mean, the Earth does go through climate cycles, right? Absolutely. And so that, that, again, your previous question was kind of along this, you know, like, what's the kind of natural climate change versus that kind of human induced climate change. And so again, this report does model that out. I was looking at some of the graphs this morning, and they literally show the kind of forcing that human beings have caused on that. And so without getting into, you know, the, the, the kind of, you know, millions of years and billions of years of Earth's formation, we know that these things delineate and that, that, that human caused climate change, anthropogenic climate change is absolutely what we are dealing with and i think that's the thing we need to wrap our heads around and and the amazing thing i have family in alberta and the amazing thing about alberta is that you're not a fossil fuel you know province you're an energy province and the opportunity for places like alberta to reorient their economies and come out ahead as the world races towards creating a renewable future and creating a, a future based on kind of clean energy alberta and the industry and the expertise and the intelligence and the engineering and the sincerity of the people of Alberta to solve these problems, you know, it, it, we, can, we can find opportunities in the storm and we can find ways to kind of redefine our interaction with the planet, but also our own economies to, to come out ahead of this. And, and that's the exciting part is that if we kind of flip the switch on this and if we actually find a way to create an economy that is in alignment with our climate, then we are in a situation where we can, you know, create the next kind of industrial economy of the future based on green technology. And I think Alberta wants to be in the driver's seat of that. And I think there's an exciting opportunity. No, I think you're right. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think there's a lot of talk and, 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 you know, taking a look at how we can possibly do that. But um, just again, so when we saw the Ice Age or when we saw the glaciers, you know, coming down across Alberta or we saw, you know, Alberta used to be, if you go to the Trail Museum and they show you what the climate was like back then, what, 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 what caused was that change? Was that just, I mean, was it the sun? Was it volcanoes? Do we, do we know at this point? Can our, can our science tell us that? Well, there's a ton of science around all of these things, right, in terms of how past climates occurred. And there's, you know, it depends on which period of time you're talking about. You know, it depends, you know, if, you know, if there's volcanoes going off and we have, you know, this global cooling that the sun can't enter into. And so there's all these different kinds of scenarios. But again, the thing that we're talking about here is that kind of anthropogenic climate change from, you know, the industrialization and the burning of oil, gas and coal. And so, again, without getting into that kind of back history, we know through this 
this report. And if you take a look at the science of the report, it's very clear, you know, human caused and, 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 and breaking points. Like we are literally at a critical moment in human society where we have to decide how we want to live on this planet. And there is an opportunity here to take the lessons learned from this IPCC report and actually start to structure our experience to track on these kinds of projections and these, you know, shared socioeconomic pathways to, to steer in the right direction. And, you know, I think our children in 50 years will look back on this period and they will judge us on whether or not we actually followed through on what we knew in this particular moment in time. And so I think, you know, this is an opportunity for us to to do good by our kids and grandkids and have them look back on their lives and say, our parents made the right choice, you know, in August of 2021 when they heard this news. And I think we all need to take that to heart. Ian, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us. All the best. That is Ian. Ian Morrow, the executive director of the Climate Change Center at the University of Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Winnipeg. Right now, we're going to have an interesting discussion. This one's really interesting, actually. Um, you remember we had Jagmeet Singh on the show uh, not even two weeks ago, week and a half ago, something like that. Um, and uh, he was talking about his plan for a wealth tax in Canada. That's his answer to the question that the NDP always get asked. How are you going to pay for this? How are you going to pay for all of these programs that you keep talking about? Well, he wants to put a tax on the super wealthy. That's what his his whole platform is. And, you know, in the U.S., Bernie Sanders basically made a, an entire career out of the same thing. Uh, you know, the Occupy Wall Street movement and the 1% and all the rest of that stuff. So I think it's safe to say it's a progressive policy. That's certainly a fair characterization. Um, but the idea of a wealth tax is wildly popular across all party lines. Really popular, especially in Canada. Um, well over the majority supporting it among voters from all party, uh, parties, according to a new poll. So let's get some of the details around what we're learning here. We're going to chat now with Katrina Miller. Katrina is the program director at the Broadbent Institute. Uh, Katrina, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Shay. I'm glad to join you. So the Broadbent Institute commissioned this poll, and uh, pretty fascinating. The vast majority of Canadians along all party lines are very much in support of a wealth tax. Yes, indeed. We see that 89% of Canadians are in support of a wealth tax. And what's so fascinating about this, of course, is that less than 10 months ago, 
uh, there was polling that showed this number to be in the high 70s. So not only is a, a vast majority of Canadians supporting it, more and more Canadians are supporting it uh, the more we talk about it. And so coming into this election, we have a near consensus in Canada about wealth tax. And higher than ever before, right? We've never had this kind of consensus before in Canada. Indeed. and In fact, I've been doing uh, progressive policy proposals for a long time, and I've never seen this kind of consensus over a bold progressive policy change um, amongst Canadians. And when we talk about 89% of Canadians, obviously that is lumping in people from all political parties, right? I mean, they're all in support of this. I think well over 80% of Conservatives would support a wealth tax. Indeed, indeed. We see it across uh, political parties, we see it across regions, we see it across age groups. The discrepancies between these different segments, which usually can be quite large when it comes to an issue like this, are very, very small. And this this is why we say it it feels like a near consensus amongst Canadians that a wealth tax should be implemented. Which is interesting, because when Jagmeet Singh introduced a 1% tax on wealth over $20 in the House of Commons, it was crushed. It got 27 votes in support, so it seems like voters seem to be all on board for this, but at this point, politicians aren't following along. Indeed, and I, I do, I do uh, think that we may see a significant change, as we all know, we're potentially facing a federal election, whether we like it or not. Um, and I think we may see a significant change in um, politicians' viewpoints on this as the platforms roll out. We know that the politicians have been paying attention to this issue, and they can see the growing support. And more than support, they can see almost an urgent call uh, for elements like a wealth tax and other fair taxation measures that make sure that those who are really, really well off, who are really, really rich, and those very large profitable corporations are paying their fair share because people are worried. They're worried about how we're eventually going to pay the deficit, and they're worried about how we're going to pay for the kind of recovery from the pandemic that people want. They want more investment in health care. They want more affordable housing. But they don't want it to come out of the pockets of the low- and middle-income households. That is very clear, and they're concerned that that's what's going to happen. So I think that's actually what's pushing the support and pushing the urgency in Canadians' minds, because we have, you know, over 80% of them across all the regions also saying that they will consider this as part of their decision about who they vote for. And it sort of reflects, you know, not just a wealth tax and, and you know, closing the tax, uh, tax loopholes and things like that. It's about inequality, right? I mean, and we've seen that widening gap uh, that we've talked, I mean, like I was talking about Occupy Wall Street. That's when it all sort of kicked off and became, you know, a, a major issue in society. But it hasn't changed. And in fact, during the pandemic, it got worse, where a lot of people uh, suffered. But billionaires made out like bandits, by and large, vastly increasing their wealth. So that inequality is really becoming a, a tipping point. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that whether or not it, it personally impacted you during the pandemic, I think all of us stood by and watched and saw the news reports of, you know, kind of the excess profits um, by some large corporations, certainly the digital giants out there, um, billionaires who are associated with those large corporations or just uh, billionaires of their own right, also making out like bandits. While we were seeing, you know, frontline healthcare workers uh, not being paid enough to go to their shifts in the long-term care homes and then suffering huge tragedies at their workplaces. And that's the kind of story that Canadians have been watching. So we pulled on that as well. And, you know, over, over half of Canadians do feel like inequality has grown worse over the pandemic. And so, again, you're right, that's fueling this ongoing conversation about how do we reduce that inequality How do we, you know, as a society, make sure that we have the public programs and services that that everyone can access so everyone has a chance at a good life? 
And then who should pay for it, right? Well, that's the thing. I mean, it, it, it all costs money. And could it be as simple as um, very, very, very few of us would be affected by this super wealthy tax uh, next to none of us? Um, so it's pretty easy to say, oh, you want them to pay instead of us? Yeah, that sounds like a great idea to me. Or is there something more than that? I think. I mean, I think that's part of it. I, there's no doubt that uh, that people recognize that they're not going to get taxed by a, a super wealth tax. You know, most people don't have over $20 million sitting in their banks and yeah. in their assets. Um, but, you know, we see support for taxes on large corporations. We see support, you know, support over 80% over increasing um, taxes on the top income tax bracket of people who make over 750000 We see support for closing tax loopholes and tax havens. So it's a much broader sense of there's an unfair system. In fact, you know, uh, whole, 62% of people we polled said that the tax system overall is unfair, and they feel it's unfair in the sense that those with more wealth generally don't pay the right amount. Interesting. Katrina, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Oh, I put my pleasure, Shay. Thanks so much for joining us. That's Katrina Miller, who is with the Broadbent Institute and commissioned this poll showing that the vast majority of Canadians um, would support a tax on the super wealthy. Now, this isn't an income tax. This is on if you have, uh, well, Jagmeet Singh's proposal at least, $20 million sitting in your bank account, um, then you need to pay tax on it. Uh, And it's a one-time shot that they estimate, according to the reports that I saw, uh, about $5.5 billion would be generated. And it could climb up to $10 billion in years to come. What's going on? As I said, I was in Banff last week. And I'm seeing it in Edmonton too, but not to the same extent that I saw in Banff. And I think it's primarily because what do you see when you're in Banff? You see the hospitality sector, right? You see hotels, you see restaurants, uh, things like that. But literally every single restaurant that I went to um, had a sign in the door saying, we're hiring. Same with stores, same with hotels, everybody. They're really trying to find people to work. Um, and we've heard tales from people right across the spectrum, across the country, in fact, saying the same thing, desperate to hire staff. Still, though, the province has an unemployment rate that is down. It was down last month, but it's still over 8%. So what's going on? How can you have high unemployment at the same time as a quote-unquote labor shortage? Is it really a labor shortage? That's what we're going to talk about here. We are joined now by Jim Stanford, who is the director of the Center for Future Work in Vancouver. Uh, Jim, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. My pleasure, Shay. Thank you. Really interesting discussion because you've been digging into the numbers around this, and we keep hearing labor shortage, labor shortage. So you've been taking a look at the current state of the labor force in Canada, and in a recent column, uh, those numbers don't necessarily indicate that we're seeing what we traditionally would think of as a labor shortage, right? Yeah, absolutely. You think of a shortage as when you run out of something. Yeah. And you can't possibly say that we've run out of workers. I agree that particularly in hospitality, with all the on-again, off-again turmoil we've been through during the pandemic, you know, it's a logistical headache. You might call it a bottleneck to try and go out and recruit workers when you all reopen. But you can't possibly say that we've run out of workers in any kind of general sense. Yeah, I mean, when you see unemployment at 8.3, I think, in Alberta right now, if I remember correctly. 8.5 it was, yeah, 8.5 on Fridays, yeah, among the higher in Canada. Yeah, very high, and you're still seeing all of these things. So what are the factors then? Why are we seeing why there's so many jobs that are open and so many people that aren't taking these jobs? Well, one of them is just the timing. I mean, we've never been through a situation where you shut down the whole industry, right, Mm -hmm. for health reasons, and then reopened it at the same time. 
So you've got thousands of restaurants and other hospitality facilities across Alberta, across Canada, really, all opening at the same time, all trying to reconnect with their staff. Um, And you've had this boom and bust uh, scenario. You know, we had a partial opening last summer, then we had to shut it down again, then we opened up in February, then we had to shut it down again. Uh, I will tell you, the hospitality industry in Alberta has uh, created and hired over 30,000 new people in just the last two months. Okay, so... Uh, we we are growing. They are finding workers. They found 30,000 new workers in two months. That's an incredible surge in employment. Um, now, uh, it's not enough, given the sudden surge in demand for restaurants with the reopening. So, you know, again, I, I absolutely uh, sympathize with the managers who are trying to find staff. Many staff gave up on the industry, right, over the last yes, year and a half yeah. and uh, went to find some other uh, way to support themselves. Um, and uh, so it's a headache, but, um, you know, the workers are out there. We've still got uh, 8.5% official unemployment in Alberta. There's lots more um, pools of underutilized labor. We've relied way too much on part-time jobs uh, in Alberta. Over 30% of the new jobs created in the last year have been part-time, and a, no, a good way to, to, to ad- address the labor supply problem is to create good regular full-time jobs instead of part-time hours. Uh, so there's things that can be done, and I'm pretty confident they will be done, and this industry will adapt and adjust to this reopening. Now, of course, a lot of people say, well, why would people take these minimum wage jobs in the uh, hotel or the restaurant when they can sit right. home and get the CERB money, pays them pretty much the same thing, they'd be crazy to go get the job. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Well, I'd say that's, that that uh, concern is kind of half true. Certainly, the, the wages uh, in hospitality are very low, typically quite close to minimum wage. Yeah. Even worse, I think, are the hours of work, Shay. Uh, you know, in, in, in restaurants and bars and hotels, uh, a lot of the time you're working odd shifts here and there. You don't necessarily have uh, predictability in those shifts, and you don't get enough hours. So I think the hours are more of a problem, frankly, than the wage. Uh, but all told, the, the average hourly income in hospitality is around $500 a week, and that's less than half the rate for the overall labor market. So, you know, on one hand, you could say if you're paying less than half the going rate, you shouldn't be surprised you have a hard time attracting people, right? So, yeah, it's um, not... Now I mean, this, I, the easy the, answer the then is of, rather than just... Sorry. If, if, sorry no, my, my apologies. Yeah. So the easy answer then, I guess, is, hey, if you're worried about government assistance uh, making it, you know, the, a wash for people to sit home, maybe you got to pay a little more, right? I think that's part of it, and I do think the role of government assistance is is kind of overstated. I think it's a bit of a, an urban myth that everyone's sitting at home collecting CERB. First of all, CERB itself doesn't exist. It was cancelled last September. Uh, we've got a range of other emergency benefits that pay three hundred dollars a week typically, and you have to you have to qualify. That means you have to have either lost your job or lost over half your income because of COVID. You have to be actively seeking work. And uh, a lot of people don't meet those. So the, the idea that, you know, there's uh, millions of Canadians sitting at home living off the government just uh, doesn't, doesn't wash. And um, uh, we can also see it in the job creation data. As I say, they are creating significant numbers of jobs. If you really could sit at home and make swads of money, how, how is it that minimum wage restaurants hired 30,000 people in the last two months? So I think that's a kind of a, uh, I don't know, a sort of a tough love uh, trope, uh, if you like, that we seem to think that people are lazy and, and, and we have to kick them in the butt to get them to work. And uh, I think that that doesn't really describe what's going on here. Another thing that's kind of interesting here is we're seeing a bunch of different, well, I guess it's industry primarily saying, hey, you got to go back to the temporary foreign workers program that we had before. we got to allow these people to come in and give us these cheap um, employees. Um, how, how, how can they make that case with unemployment rates being what they are? Yeah. 
You know, every time I hear a business uh, lobby group stand up and say to government, we've got a labor shortage, I know without even looking what's coming next. Number one, cut EI and other income supports. We've heard that claim. Number two, open up the temporary foreign migrant worker program uh, even more. And those are two ways that in a way help the business sector avoid the pressure of trying to recruit labor by improving the wages and, and conditions. Instead of lifting wages, what we'll do is we'll find some other pool of desperate people who will work for cheap and do the job that I want them to do. Now, the temporary foreign worker program, of course, was clearly disrupted by the pandemic, and for good reasons, right? Everything yeah, was sure. disrupted and involved travel. So, um, and and I, uh, again, you know, for industries, the, the program wasn't that big, frankly. It was 2 or 3% of total employment across the country. But there's some firms that I think became, you know, dependent on the cheap foreign labor to, to meet their staffing needs, and for them it's a headache. So this is, a, in a way, a, an opportunity and a challenge to rethink their business model and say, okay, I, I can't really count on this program. We don't even know where this pandemic is going. It's not over yet, obviously. So in the meantime, we're going to figure out how to do this with the workers we've got here in Canada. Um, so what's the prediction here? I mean, I think everybody recognizes that coming out of what we've been going through for the yep. last eight months, there's going to be some bumps in the roads. There's going to be some ups and downs, and it's not going to be a smooth, hey, okay, everything's fine again all of a sudden. Is that what this is? And we can look to, you know, six months or a year from now, all of this being sort of settled and, and back to some sort of functioning reality? Uh, that's a big piece of it. There's no doubt that this is a, you know, a, a bottleneck, a logistical headache as we try to reopen. But the, the Alberta hospitality sector is now hiring more people than it has since February 2020, before the pandemic hit. So they're a long way towards recovery. They've still got some more to go, and they're still going to have some headaches trying to find workers. Hey, they've got headaches trying to find plexiglass. They've got <laughs> headaches <laughs> trying to find everything else, the food and everything else that they need when they open up. So this is quite understandable. So I think to a large extent, this problem is going to resolve itself. Uh, a good analogy, Shay, remember in the pandemic when everyone decided to renovate their house at yes, the same yeah. time? Well, you know what that did to the price of lumber, right? It went bananas. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't stay bananas forever. The market adjusted and uh, people adjusted their plans. And lo and behold, the price of lumber is pretty well back to normal. And I think with a few months, uh, much of this will be uh, solved. I will point out, though, that hospitality employers have always complained about a labor shortage long before the pandemic they said there was a labor shortage and uh, again i think that's just uh reflects their failure to offer the sorts of jobs they had, they had very high turnover people take the job but then they quit because the wages are low or the conditions are bad or the hours are irregular so they always have vacancies they can't fill and that was true before the pandemic and i think that will still be true unless they rethink their business model and say, here's a way where we can offer jobs that you can live on that are careers rather than kind of short-term throwaway jobs, and that's how you'll uh, manage to address this problem long-term. It'll be interesting to see, and, and yeah, it's going to be a rocky road. <laughs> there, there's no question, so uh, we'll stay up to speed on it. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Jim. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Shay. That is Jim Stanford, who is the director of the Center for Future Work in Vancouver, talking about... Um, well, I guess, do you, do you call it a labor shortage? That's that's the question I have. And we've done this story before here, right? You remember us talking about this before. Can you call it a labor shortage when you're in a position where unemployment in the province of Alberta is 8.5 and businesses are saying, we can't get people to come work for us? Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.